please give your, your warm welcome to William Patry. Well, I'm, I'm certain I don't deserve that sort of wonderful introduction, and by the time I'm through, you'll probably agree I don't. Uh, but we'll have uh, hopefully a good talk, and, and I'm more interested in the conversation uh, afterwards, uh, of course, than my, my particular speech. Uh, so we, we, we know from a number of reviews and comments made that copyright laws have been declared by governments around the world to be essential for lots of wonderful things. Uh, creativity, innovation, the knowledge economy, and most of all, jobs. This may give back to the first Bill Clinton uh, presidential run where they had taped up on the wall, it's the economy, stupid. But simply believing that copyright laws cause all these wonderful things to come true doesn't mean necessarily that they will. And if we want wonderful things to come true, and I'm certain we all do, we, we have to do more than just hope that they come true. We have to figure out how that can happen. And it's my belief, at least, that the first step is having an evidentiary basis for what we want to do, and then passing laws that will enact what the evidence shows. Now, in the past, we've had a very poor record of this. Uh, in the United States, we only have poor records of this. Uh, you had the Gowers Review, and in that Mr. Gowers, after uh, what I thought was a very careful empirical study on the issue of sound recordings and whether there should be an extension of term for sound recordings, concluded that most sound recordings sell only for the first 10 years, and that royalties are heavily skewed towards a few superstars, not that they don't deserve it, it's just that's what popular and that what sells. And that therefore longer term of copyright really wouldn't help most performing artists in the sense it wouldn't put any more money into their pocket. Um, it might perpetuate what we already have as a sort of permission society where before you do anything as an author or artist or performer, you have to call up your lawyer and ask whether it's okay to include this or that piece. Uh, it also has effects on archivists and preservationists uh, who want to keep older works and, and make them available. Our chair, Dr. Donach, uh, last year completed a uh, wonderful study of Irish traditional musics, musicians and their attitudes towards copyright. And so he interviewed uh, a lot of musicians, maybe he'll tell us more about this later, and tried to find out how important copyright actually was to them. This is doing field work. This is real evidentiary-based work. And he found that most musicians had a rather relaxed view towards uh, use of their compositions and arrangements, that they had a rather informal social network, I believe, of resolving disputes uh, rather, resort, rather than resorting to lawsuits. Uh, that they weren't anti-copyright in any sense of the word. Uh, most of them were the opinion if, if a large corporation or entity used their work and was making money off of it, that they should make money 
off of that as well. Uh, they also cared about attribution, that people knew that this was their work. Generally, though, they wanted to keep lawyers out of their lives. So I think that if you're looking towards an evidentiary-based approach, it's good to go ask the people who you're trying to help and figure out how they want to be helped. And so his study is, is a great study, and perhaps we'll talk about it. Now, to go back to the Gower's report just for a moment, uh, Mr. Gower did his thorough review, he made his recommendations, and the government promptly ignored them. Uh, and instead of saying, well, you know, your evidence uh, is actually not very good, and, and we think it's something else, um, at that time, the Secretary of State for Culture, Media, and Sport uh, said, well, we're going to do it because there is a moral case at the heart of copyright. Uh, so I, I, I would suggest that we're all lost if you can commission a review, have a sound evidentiary basis for it, and then simply ignore it because you think there's a moral case to be made for it. Uh, but you know that, that's in fact what happened and subsequently happened at the EU level as well. So now we have an EU directive. Um, by which everyone's going to have implement this longer term. We went through this in, in the United States um, as well. We had challenges in our Supreme Court. Now, fast forward a number of years, a uh, new review, uh, this time by Professor Hargraves, uh, also a new government, new ministers, of course, and this time it's you know, seemingly a, a rather different uh, situation where the government has uh, broadly endorsed, I think, the recommendations. Some of them are uh, allowing certain acts of private copying, like format shifting, uh, widening exceptions for data mining for scientific and medical research, uh, a parody and pastiche exception, which I'll come back to in a moment, uh, licensing of orphan works, uh, voluntary extended collective licensing, sort of along the Scandinavian level, uh, licensing by collecting society of, of all necessary rights, we, we can talk about that too, and other exceptions for education, quotations, people with disabilities. Uh, perhaps as importantly, the government also endorsed Professor Hargrave's call for an evidence-based uh, approach, and uh, this, I think, is really a huge step forward. So, a partial answer to the title, what would an evidence-based copyright law look like, is it would look like the government's recommendations, I think. Um, I would go much further, uh, speaking for myself and not, not for my employer. Uh, I actually never speak for my employer. It's, it's not my job uh, to do that. Uh, so I would personally go much further, recognizing, of course, how, how difficult that is. So I would myself change from the one-size-fits-all approach where every single work that can be copyrighted gets exactly the same uh, type of protection, you know, where classroom textbooks get the same protection as a, as a motion picture. Um, I would look at the actual market conditions for each type of work and give to each work what the market signals uh, say the commercial value of it are. Um, I would certainly cut back on the length of copyright. Uh, there are some works that don't need copyright at all. Maybe crown copyright is one of those, but uh, you know we don't have protection for government works in, in the United States. Uh, 
business documents, emails, things that don't need the incentive of copyright. Uh, I would also have formalities like notice and uh, renewal. Uh, that would take care of the orphan works problem. I mean, to say you have an orphan works problem but not understand what the cause of the problem is um, makes it difficult to come up with a fix. And, and to me, the orphan works problem is that the term of copyright is so long and automatic that there's a large class of works for which no one has any commercial interest, but yet you can't do anything um, about that. Uh, I would certainly repeal all the uh, anti-circumvention laws, uh, which, which I, th I think are a mistake. Three, stakes, three strikes laws, graduated response, um, and reform damages so that copyright owners can certainly be compensated for harm that they have but where damages aren't used as sort of leverage against others. Now, I realize that even the sort of modest recommendations that perhaps the government has make some people nervous. And what, what I'd like to do is to use uh, a report that was uh, recently sent in by the Oxford uh, Economics Group as a response to the consultation. And I'm going to use this a bit in the speech, not to beat up on them, but because it's an example of how uh, a uh, call for an evidence-based approach to copyright can run into difficulties. Now, the group's name actually gives me a little bit of pause. It's the Alliance Against IP Theft. And, you know, it's sort of a negative thing. Maybe you could have a positive name, like the Alliance for Economic Growth through IP, or the Alliance for Digital Opportunities. I mean, the Hargraves Review was called you know, Digital Opportunity, and it might be better to be for something rather than against other people. And you know, theft is sort of an, an ugly word. It includes um, attributions of, of really bad behavior, like the Girl Scout singing the Macarena around a fire without getting permission from a collecting society, um, or making fun of the Premier League's referees, which I was surprised to understand from the report is, is a serious issue. Um, yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I live in the United States. My mother was Irish, my father's Canadian, but I live in the United States, so uh, I didn't know that you know, the Premier League's referees were, were being mercilessly parody, but it seems to be the case and that seems to be a reason why you should not have a statutory parody exception. Now, uh, before I go into this report, and of course we're at the London School of Economics, and I want to talk about a report by the Oxford Economics Group. Uh, that, that particular report, as, as I understand, is intended to show how the government got its economics all wrong. So before we figure out if the government got its economics all wrong, um, I think maybe we'll do what, what's called copyright math. Uh, let's see if I can find, there was a mouse here. Mm, where did it go? Not, not, not the live mouse, but the other kind of mouse. Ah, right, okay, so how do I do this here? I work for a technology company, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> In case you couldn't tell. All right, let's do this. Now we're going to go to... All right, this is a fellow called Rob Reed.
and he's going to teach us about copyright math. This is at a conference called the TED conference here. Uh, is there a volume? The recent debate over copyright laws like SOPA in the United States and the Act Agreement in Europe has been very emotional. And I think some dispassionate quantitative reasoning could really bring a great deal to the debate. I'd therefore like to propose that we employ, we enlist the cutting edge field of copyright math whenever we approach this subject. For instance, just recently, the Motion Picture Association revealed that our economy loses $58 billion a year to copyright theft. Now, rather than just argue about this number, a copyright mathematician will analyze it. And he'll soon discover that this money could stretch from this auditorium all the way across Ocean Boulevard to the Westin, and then to Mars. <laughs> if we use pennies. Now, this is obviously a powerful, some might say dangerously powerful insight. But it's also a morally important one. Because this isn't just the hypothetical retail value of some pirated movies that we're talking about, but this is actual economic losses. This is the equivalent to the entire American corn crop failing, along with all of our fruit crops, as well as wheat, tobacco, rice, sorghum, whatever sorghum is. <laughs> Losing sorghum. But identifying the actual losses to the economy is almost impossible to do unless we use copyright math. Now, music revenues are down by about $8 billion a year since Napster first came on the scene. So that's a chunk of what we're looking for. But total movie revenues across theaters, home video, and pay-per-view are up. And TV, satellite, and cable revenues are way up. Other content markets like book publishing and radio are also up. So this small missing chunk here is puzzling. Since the big content markets have grown in line with historic norms, it's not additional growth that piracy has prevented, but copyright math tells us it must therefore be foregone growth in a market that has no historic norms, one that didn't exist in the 90s. What we're looking at here is the insidious cost of ringtone piracy. $50 billion of it a year, which is enough at 30 seconds of ringtone that could stretch from here to Neanderthal times. It's true. I have Excel. The movie folks also tell us that our economy loses over 370,000 jobs to content theft, which is quite a lot when you consider that back in 98, the Bureau of Labor Statistics indicated that the motion picture and video industries were employing 270,000 people. <laughs> Other data has the music industry at about 45,000 people, and so the job losses that came with the internet and all that content theft have therefore left us with negative employment in our content industries. And this is just one of the many mind-blowing statistics that copyright mathematicians have to deal with every day and some people think that string theory is tough. <laughs> now this is a key number from the copyright mathematicians toolkit. It's the precise amount of harm that comes to media companies whenever a single copyrighted song or movie gets pirated. Hollywood and Congress derived this number mathematically back when they last sat down to improve copyright damages and made this law. Some people think this number is a little bit large, but copyright mathematicians who are media lobby experts are merely surprised that it doesn't get compounded for inflation every year. 
Now, when this law first passed, the world's hottest MP3 player could hold just 10 songs, and it was a big Christmas hit. Because what little hoodlum wouldn't want a million and a half bucks worth of stolen goods in his pocket? <laughs> These days, an iPod Classic can hold 40,000 songs, which is to say, $8 billion worth of stolen media. Or about 75,000 jobs. Now, you might find copyright math strange, but that's because it's a field that's best left to experts. So that's it for now. I hope you'll join me next time when I will be making an equally scientific and fact-based inquiry into the cost of alien music piracy to the American economy. Thank you very much. Thank you. How do I get out of this? There's a. There we go. Okay, great. Now. After his presentation, he actually blogged uh, on Ted's blog uh, with a post called The Numbers Behind the Copyright Math. So if, if you're interested in going behind the humor uh, and you know, trying to figure out how he got the numbers he did or, or other numbers, you, you can actually go to the blog. With copyright math now under our belt, uh, we can turn to the Oxford Group's attack on the government's Hargraves response so that you can form your own uh, opinion of this and relying on fair dealing in Article 30 um, of your Copyright Act. Uh, here's the whole report. I'm going to see if I can scan through here to page 15. This is where I discovered about the Premier League. Yes, right. The, the second uh, paragraph there. This is an argument. These are externalities, right? These are costs that can't be recouped in, in price. And so one of the reasons for not having the, the parody exception is that the endless parodying of Premier League's referees, either on a commercial or non-commercial basis, could risk bringing the game of football into disrepute. <laughs> this is, a, this is a, a serious economic group's response to the government's call for evidence. Um, then on page 14, let's see if I can go straight up here. You really can't make these things up, which is why I wanted to show it to you. All right, which, ah, yes. Right, we learn that this is in the, the first full paragraph here. Parodies of local celebrities and local public figures are common in the UK and many other countries. Uh, but would have little meaning to foreigners. In short, parody often doesn't travel well. Now, I happen to have traveled 3,466 miles here, and I have to tell you that people in the States love British humor. Uh, here are some examples. This is Rumpole of the Bailey, right? Uh, extras, uh, classic, The Meaning of Life, something you won't get today. Uh, Walls and Gromit, a matter of loaf and death, for those of you who are bakers. Shaun the Sheep, one of my favorites. This is Sheep on the Loose. Um, and Abfab. Now, my 10-year-old son uh, particularly loves potty humor. I confess I do, too. And no one does potty humor, I think, better than the English. 
So I think your comedy really does travel well. What actually doesn't travel well at all are these DVDs, because I wouldn't be able to play them here, of course, because of regional coding. Uh, there was a very famous example of this when uh, Gordon Brown was the Prime Minister and he and, and Barack Obama were exchanging gifts and Gordon Brown gave President Obama some really fantastic gifts. They were quite meaningful and, and I thought they were great. And Obama gave him a really cheesy gift. He gave him this box set of American movies on DVD. So Gordon Brown goes home and he's going to play them. Except he can't, because right? there's regional coding. So, you know, comedy may travel well, but just sort of the copyright implications of these things don't. All right, well, that gives you a little bit of a flavor, I think, of, of the type of economic analysis that we have here. But I want to get right to what, what the heart of it is here. And this is on page four. Right, second paragraph. Uh, they're, they're, you know, saying how you know we have to sort of figure out how to discuss this. Right, this is always, you know, we're going to agree on how we're going to discuss things. Right, so the second paragraph there uh, talks about uh, standard microeconomic theory suggests that social welfare is maximized under conditions of perfect competition. Now, perfect competition. Uh, and social welfare are, of course, they sound really great. Who doesn't want to maximize social welfare? And we all want to be perfect. But in this context, perfect competition means something else. First of all, it's a theory. Um, and it's an attempt to understand how private resources are going to be allocated in a free market. So we have a, a, a concern with efficiency, which those of you who are economists know that this is definitely a term of art. And what we're trying to find out is what the most efficient uh, allocation of resources is, except in this context, it's done solely by price and price alone. So what are the assumptions? We always have to figure out what assumptions are for theories, of course. And perfect competition assumes that there are no large companies uh, that are large enough to set price. There's an infinite number of buyers and sellers. There's a perfectly elastic demand curve. There's no barrier to entry. There are no transaction costs. There's perfect information about the price and quality of goods. The goods are all sort of the same in terms of quality. Um, and people in the market aren't going to attempt to increase their profits by price undercutting, by product design, by advertising, or by innovation. So, in short, perfect competition doesn't reflect any known actual market or behavior by human beings. Uh, there are studies, of, of course, in behavioral economics with people like Daniel Kahneman who do study the way that actual humans behave, um, but you won't, you won't find it here. So, how does the actual copyright market work? That would be an important thing to figure out, to figure out if perfect competition works here. So one of the things that's in the news is the potential merger between EMI uh, and, this is on the recorded label side, um, EMI and Universal. There are four record labels that together control about 90% of the market in the US and a little over 70%
worldwide. So if those two merge, they will have over 40% of the entire market. So imagine that you're negotiating in a perfect competition environment where one party owns uh, somewhat less than 50% of the entire market. Five motion picture companies control 80% of the U.S. market and around 75% of the market worldwide. One would have to conclude that there's no perfect competition there. Um, also, we have a government grant of uh, a monopoly in, in the form of copyright. Uh, and I dare say that most copyright works aren't fungible. At least their creators don't believe that they're fungible. Right, if you want to take your family and young kids to see a family comedy and it turns out it's a horror movie, you're, you're probably going to be uh, heading home. Now, despite all of these sort of uh, imperfections in using perfect competition, does the report actually hold up at one of the critical points of the government's consultation, which is creativity? Right? How do we encourage creativity and innovation? Um, does it apply there? And the answer is actually no, it doesn't apply at all. And one of the reasons it doesn't apply, um, we can find in the work of Professor Harold Demsetz. Uh, he was uh, a member of the Chicago School of Economics. Uh, he wrote a 1967 article on property rights that, at least in the U.S., is one of the most widely cited in IP economic literature. He was considered the founder of the law and economics. If you want to find a guy who's pro-property, it's going to be Harold Demsetz. So in, in, in 2009, he wrote an article in a journal called The Review of Economic Research and Copyright. That's a good place to look if you want to find an evidence-based you know, theory in copyright. You go to, to a journal that's, that's concerned with that. And he wrote an article called Creativity in the Economics of the Copyright Controversy. Uh, it's only seven pages long. It's a really simple article. There's no math. There's no, not even of the copyright math sort. Um, there are no graphs, there's no calculations, it's just sort of straight, easy, Chicago-type reading. And one of the things he goes into is this use of uh, perfect competition as a way to figure out what an evidence-based policy should be in encouraging creativity. Can, can it actually work that way? And he says no, and here's what he says. The role of the price system was modeled in a way that implicitly removed creative activity from the resource allocation opportunities. Right? Remember, I said perfect competition is about resource allocation. And he points out here that the price system was constructed in a way to remove um, any creative activity from it. He said, it to allow such opportunities would have resulted in complexities of risk and uncertainty necessitating a confrontation with imperfect information. Any serious attempt to include creativity in this inquiry would have made the task of determining resource allocation influenced by prices impossible. In, in short, without standing here and reading a seven-page article for you, what he's pointing out is that price competition deliberately excludes creativity because creativity, of course, has imperfect substitutes imperfect information. So in short, if you're going to use perfect competition in price theory, you can't do it in copyright because the inherent nature of the entire enterprise conflicts with that. 
So why use perfect competition then? Why use price theory in trying to figure out what copyright policy for creativity and innovation is? Sort of doesn't make sense to use a theory that actually excludes it. And I think the reason for it is, is that the purpose is to preserve the static quo. The status quo assumes under price competition um, a model where there isn't change, right? where there isn't creativity, where there isn't innovation. And so if creativity and innovation are dynamic, then I think we need laws that are dynamic as well. If the whole purpose is encouraging creativity and creativity is dynamic and not static and conflicts with perfect competition, which is a static model, then it, it doesn't make any sense at all. You need laws that are dynamic, and that's common sense. It's not even economics, right? If what you're trying to do is encourage people to be dynamic, you can't have a legal system that's static, especially one that's static going back to the early 18th century, as our copyright laws basically are. Now, aside from creativity, aside from wanting to encourage creativity, there are other reasons, I think, for the government to be doing what it's doing. And the reason for that is, I believe, getting people to obey the law. And I think this is a very serious concern. Um, one of the books that I found very informative is by a fellow uh, at New York University, uh, Tom Tyler. He has this book called Why People Obey Law. Right? So the title of the book is not Why People Disobey the Law. <laughs> it's Why Do People Obey the Law? Now, I, I worked for our US Congress for seven years. I was involved in drafting a lot of copyright laws, including criminal laws. And if you're going to put people in jail, if you're going to fine them tremendous amounts uh, of, of money, the $150,000 per work that, uh, that Rob Reed was talking about, uh, you should have a good reason for doing that. Uh, now, we have in the United States a new uh, register of copyrights. She's been on the job oh, a few months. And as typical when you start a new job, at least in government, you know, you give an interview and you sort of lay out what your philosophy is and how you may approach things. And she said, well, I always start with enforcement issues because if there isn't effective enforcement, there are no meaningful exclusive rights and then there isn't any copyright at all. Now among the enforcement issues she was talking about was our SOPA legislation, which perhaps we'll get a chance to talk about either. Um, and on that, she testified before our Congress that unless SOPA was passed, the U.S. copyright system will ultimately fail. Since SOPA failed, I think we'll have an empirical test of whether or not our copyright system will fail. But in any event, I, I disagree with the register, uh, whom, whom I've known for quite a while, on both points. I disagree that enforcement is, is where you start. Um, and I disagree because if your focus is on figuring out how to go after people who disobey the law, there's something seriously wrong with the current situation. Success, I think, is figuring out how you get people to obey laws. Um, in New York City, um, there are 
a number of different theories on how you stop crime. And you know, they've had a number of police commissioners there. Um, one theory was that you flood the areas where there is the most crime. You don't spread the police um, equally among the entire city. You figure out where the most crime is, and then you flood them there. And people are somewhat willing to tolerate that if you know, there is a lot of crime emanating from one area, and even the people who live there um, will, will tolerate it. But you can't have a huge police force in the entire city. First of all, people will not tolerate, um, at least in New York City, you know, a huge amount of police walking around all day stopping them for, for anything that's going on. In the case of activity that occurs in private, you can't even do that. So you have to rely on something else to get most people to obey the law, especially for private activity like, like copyright infringement. So how do you do that? How do you get people to obey the law in the first place? And Professor Tyler has two ideas. Um, and like our chair, he's actually done a tremendous amount of field research on how you get people to obey the law. So the first approach is that laws have to be consistent with general social values. And that, that sort of makes sense. It's pretty hard to get large numbers of people to obey laws that they don't agree with. So what you need to do, of course, is to get cooperation. You get people to agree um, that the laws that we have are generally fair. And then you'll have cooperation. In the area of copyright, I think you would have the uh, availability of legal works at fair prices and unfair conditions. Uh, you'd have the ability to engage in format shifting. You'd have the ability to make fun of Premier League referees if you want. Um, those are things that most people believe you should be able to do free of government interference. Uh, you'd also probably have the ability to make you know, mixtapes and you'd have the ability to uh, put stuff on YouTube or whatever, whatever platform you want. Now, the other thing that you need to do, of course, is that in heterogeneous societies, not everyone's going to agree on what the law should be. There's going to be lots of people who disagree about what the law should be. And for that, uh, the solution that Professor Tyler gives, and having worked for Congress, it makes sense, um, is that the process by which laws are drafted have to be deemed fair. They have to be transparent. People have to have the ability to participate. And in that sort of environment, you're going to have an opportunity to engage in leadership. Now, in, in the SOPA situation in the United States, SOPA is you know, Stop Online Piracy um, Act. There is also one in the Senate called PIPA. We have all of these acronyms for our legislation. And sometimes people spend more creative effort in coming up with the titles than they do um, in, the, in the actual bills. But uh, this, this was legislation that was wildly unpopular uh, among wide groups of people. Uh, there were hearings about it, which were sort of stage hearings. Um, there was a belief that the legislation would be passed anyway at least by the proponents and by the members of Congress. And then there was sort of a popular uprising against that. 
Now, had that law been passed anyway, what would the result have been? I think it would have been widespread uh, lack of compliance with laws. So in an evidence-based approach to copyright, I think it's entirely fitting for any government to take a look and figure out, will this law actually be obeyed? Uh, Professor Jane Ginsburg wrote an article called How Copyright Got a Bad Name for Itself. And she blamed the number of sides uh, for that. But it's an important question to ask. If you're going to enact laws, will those laws actually be uh, followed? So in conclusion, I would say that an evidence-based copyright law has to be based upon what our social values are. It has to be based on the actual conditions by which people create and the living conditions of authors. It has to be dynamic because our society is dynamic and the nature of creativity um, is dynamic. In short, I think an evidence-based copyright law has to match the way that we live now. So I'm happy to take questions. Um, so thank you, uh, William, for that uh, engaging lecture. Um, we can now begin the question and answer session. Um, is there anybody in the audience who would like to, to ask the first question? We have microphones on either side. So. Right. Don't be shy. When I was a law professor, it's always the first. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, Mark Amfulgoff. It's hard to know almost where to begin with a, with a question. You've mentioned pepper and soap and such like. It seems to me that a lot of this is very badly skewed. A lot of the things that are driving it are protectionist and driven by large corporate vested interests. So I'd be interested to hear what you think about that. The other thing is that there seems to be a lot of disparity in the way things are. A simple example, based partly on something that happened recently uh, to somebody I know. Um, if you have um, an artwork, that's a copyrightable thing, uh, you may choose to sell it and somebody will display it in the restaurant. People can come in and look at it. If you choose to buy music and you want to play it in your restaurant, then you have to pay more money to do so despite having paid it. So I'd be interested to hear some of your views on that sort of disparity and, and, and the sort of reaction to this um, protectionist approach rather than the open and uh, developmental approach to... to Right. right, so one of the things I would say is that uh, the sort of one-size-fits-all approach that, that we currently have for all works doesn't really work well for any work, perhaps. So if you look at the way that different works are exploited, so if take your example of a painting. So if I buy a painting, um, what would I think I could do with that painting? You know, th this matches the idea of laws fitting what, what people generally believe. Or if I'm a museum and I buy a painting and I pay $5 million for a painting, what do I think I could do with that? Well, one of the things I would think I could do with it would be to display it. That's the purpose for, for buying it, is to be able to display it. So it wouldn't be untoward um, if you as an artist sell somebody a painting for them to display it. and and. You know, not have to pay something extra for that. Uh, if I'm a musician and I create a work 
and I want to make my living, you know, being a musician. Um, my my graduate undergraduate degrees are in music, and I quickly determined that I couldn't make a living <laughs> as a musician, so I don't make a living that way. But um, if you are one of the brave souls who does want to make a uh, a living out of being a, a musician, then what would your expectations be? So I would say, uh, if someone is playing a song uh, in public and making money for it, you know, the, the, it, it is likely that you would believe you'd have to get paid. Uh, this is where your research, I think, comes in because um, it's a little bit more nu nuanced than that. Uh, if I'm singing it at home in the shower, I wouldn't think I would get paid. Um, in terms of a restaurant, um, maybe it depends upon the type of restaurant. So in the United States, we have a provision on this. And it was actually found to be violative of GATT. It was the Irish uh, society, of course, that took the United States to a WTO panel. Um, and the United States was found to be in violation of its GATT obligations. But there was an easy fix. We just paid a little bit of money for that. And we continue on our, our violative way. So if it's a small restaurant, say, where it's a radio, and you're just listening to something on the radio, and you're not selecting it, right? You're just, you have your channel there, and you listen to it, most people wouldn't think you would have to pay just for turning on the restaurant, turning on a radio in your restaurant. If you had a very sophisticated sound system, um, and you were charging people to come into the restaurant to dance, or, you know, or somehow a draw, um, th then it might be different. So I would distinguish things um, that way. Now, even in the art example, uh, you can run into difficulty. So in the United States, we don't have a, a droit de suite. We don't have a resale royalty right, right which is the subject of, of an EU directive on that. And, it was, and there was a lot of controversy uh, about droit de suite. When I worked for the Copyright Office, I went to France and Germany and interviewed a bunch of art dealers and artists and, and others about whether there should be a, a right of resale. Right? If I sell my painting to somebody and that person turns around and sells it to somebody else, should I get a cut of the money? Let's say I sell something to an art dealer for 10,000 pounds and 10 years later they turn around and sell it for 100,000 pounds. You know, should I get a cut of that 90,000 pound difference? The art dealers would say no, because the next painting you get is going to go for 100,000 pounds or more. They might also say, well, what happens if I lose money on it? Are you going to then, you know, you know give me some of the money for it? So, you know, you have to sort of figure out what the economics are for each work. Yeah, and, and just to add a small point on, on that about the restaurant and playing music and things like that, it's a very interesting uh, kind of thing to ponder. Um, I suppose you could say that the musicians who join PRS for Music, which is the body who collects royalties based on public performance of music at restaurants, at gyms, and, and at other venues, uh, that those musicians who join those uh, collecting societies do expect uh, that their music, uh, w w when it is played, they expect to receive something for it. 
Um, however, there are, I know some of the musicians that I interviewed who were mainly Irish traditional musicians as part of my PhD were not members um, and they wouldn't mind if their music was being played at a pub or a restaurant. In fact, they encouraged that. Um, and some other musicians that, that I interviewed also said that they were quite disappointed with the amount of money they actually received back from organizations such as PRS for Music. So even if you join with the laudable goal of receiving a certain amount, uh, you may find that the big collecting societies tend to, uh, most of the royalties goes, go to the biggest pop musicians rather than a, the, the smaller musicians, and that's based on, royal, it's based on um, the rate of performance and radio play and that sort of thing. So there's a disparity there as well that I think William talked about, that um, the big players get a lot of the cake when it comes to uh, the uh, distribution of royalties. We, you we, want to follow up? Sure. Sorry. Um, I, I, I mean, very interesting what you're saying there, but I, and I think disparities are important because you say it should be okay to play uh, a radio, but PRS for Music expect the restaurant to pay for paying that when the BBC or the radio have already paid the rights to broadcast the music. So I think that in the case of music, there are some very, very serious questions to, to address. And my point about comparing paintings and things was if you make prints and you sell them, you don't expect to get additional money when they're displayed. If you make CDs and sell your music, you still expect to get additional, additional monies. So I think there are some, there's some double and triple charging going on. And I think that the, the whole rationale really is worthy of some serious examination. Um, right. We do have in the States uh, a concept of through to the viewer or through to the listener licenses where you would say you have one license at the outset and then all the various chains by which it gets to different people um, is unlicensed. Of course what happens is that the BBC then would be charged a lot more because it would be paying for the restaurants <laughs> use of it and, and that may not be popular with the BBC although I imagine it would be quite popular with, with the restaurants. We had a question over here as well. Uh, I was wondering, what do you think of ideas like, I mean, I know in, I know like, for example, I mean, like the Walt Disney Company have this policy where they have this vault policy where they, like, where they keep, like, their films and their products, they, they sort of keep them in vaults for, like, every, and then release them every seven years to the public, and they do that to sort of control their market and things like that, but don't you think like policies like that just encourage people to sell DVDs before they sort of go out of out of general sale and things and sort of for really expensive prices and sort of encourage people to want to find things for free? Don't you think there should be a balance? Because don't you understand why people might want to, I mean, find things for free? I mean, I know that a lot of, I mean people want to sort of try and get things for free before they buy them. Do you think there should be some sort of balance in that area of how things like that should work? Mm -hmm. Right. So I have, I have ten and a half year old twins um, but they've never shown the fondness for Disney movies. So at the personal level I've never had to actually worry about that one. But I'm very familiar with their practices in doing that 
And on that specific level, I would say that's entirely up to the Disney company to decide how they want to uh, to, to market their works. But I, I think you raise a more fundamental question, which, which is this, that if you create a demand for products and you don't satisfy that demand, then that causes difficulties. And this gets back to obey versus disobey the law. Right? The way to get people to obey the law is, I think, to satisfy in, in the marketplace what their demands were. So in October, I was in Australia, and I was on a panel with the head of the World Intellectual Property Organization and a member of a collecting society. And the member of the, uh, of the collecting society was complaining about our modern culture actually made me feel young to, to have someone complaining about our modern culture. Right? <laughs> Always going to be someone complaining about you kids, right? It wasn't referring to me, but I still took solace in it. Um, and what he was complaining about is that everybody wants things now, you know, sort of instantaneous stuff. And I said, you should be so lucky that people actually want your stuff and they want it now. The problem that you face is of your own making by not giving them what you've created the demand for. And I asked people in the audience, and there were about 100 people there, and they were uh, not particularly young people. The, the, the audience was a bit older, a, a bit younger um, in, in some ways. Um, I asked them if they were satisfied with the current availability of legal works. And out of 100 people, only one person raised his hand. And maybe others were shy, and they didn't do it. So you have to take that into account. So I asked how many people were not satisfied with the current availability, right? And almost everyone raised their hands. So, so the issue, I think, in terms of obeying or disobeying the law is this, that you want to flood the market, I think, with legal copies of stuff. There's always going to be people who will take stuff and not pay for it. My own work, that you know, that this book um, is available in torrent forms, and it's available on e-books, uh, on you know, on Kindle and other e-books for like nine dollars U.S. But there's still going to be people who will do it, and you know, for them, okay, fine. You know, it's an ideological statement, it's a political statement, whatever it is. There will be people like that, and we do need copyright laws for that. But um, if there is a huge availability of works at fair prices, and then you get into a situation, I think, where people will obey the laws. Why disobey them? You, know, the, the, you, know, you can get what you want. So I do think, yes, we do have to have this situation. Where it plays out is, do we really want as a society to devote huge amounts of government resources and government officials in enforcing bad business models? Obviously, it's a rhetorical question. I think the answer is no. We do want to commit resources to enforce good business models. And when those arise, that's an absolutely good use um, of copyright law. Do we have another question down there? There's one upstairs, because we can't okay. get the people upstairs. Yeah, you're next to one. Yeah, Nikolai Plum here. Um, 
The, uh, the copyright, if it's created, the copyright term, if something is created by a corporation, varies from that if it's an individual. And the individual's is dependent on when they die, not when they created it. So I'd be very interested to know your thoughts on that disparity and what the evidence-based approach to that should be. Yes. So in the United States, before... I'll talk about the United States because I know it best. Uh, before 1978, that wasn't true. Before 1978 and going back to 1790, we had a different regime. And it's a regime I've actually come to like a lot. You, know, you sort of miss the things you don't have. And so that regime measured copyright based upon the date of publication. It was a regime, of course, that we copied from the UK. In fact, almost the entirety of the fundamentals of US copyright law were copied from the UK, including fair use. Um, and and most of the, of the other doctrines and you know your law was 14 years plus 14 years and so we copied that in fact if if the UK had crown copyright in the statute of Anne we would have violated it um, except we didn't recognize your law of course um, we didn't we lived for a hundred years of course without giving protection to Dickens and others so you know that that was our 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 sort of uh, national policy on that. So when the United States goes around lecturing other countries about piracy, um, it's a bit amusing um, to see that. Um, but it was measured that way. So there was no difference between corporations and people. It was all measured from the date of publication. From 1909 to, 19, to December 31st, 1977, our term of copyright was 28 years from the date of first publication. And if you filed a renewal statement in the final 28 years, you could get another 28 years. Now, uh, this was, I think, a great market experiment. And people studied the renewal records uh, going back 100 years. In 1909, when our law was revised, Congress went back and looked at the renewal records. In 1956, our copyright office went back and looked at the renewal records. In the late 90s, uh, Judge Posner and Professor Landis went back and looked at the copyright records. And the records were fairly consistent for over 100 years. Um, and here's what they showed. They showed that there was a general renewal rate of 15%. Now that rate wasn't the uh, actual rate of works that were under copyright because most works were not registered in the first place so they couldn't be renewed. Right? What that showed, I think, is that the 28-year term of copyright for 85% of the works that went through the trouble to get it at all was adequate. It wasn't hard to get the renewal. It cost $3. It was a, a simple government form. I know that may sound like an oxymoron. Um, and Okay, I take that. But it wasn't that difficult to do, really. Um, um, I did them, so it couldn't have been that hard to do. Uh, so if you would ask somebody, you know, I'm going to give you a 28-year government monopoly, and it's going to cost you $3, and you fill out a single page, would you do it? Most people would say, sure, that's not a problem. But the truth is that 85% of the people didn't do it. They didn't do it because they, it was hard or they were lazy. They did it because they made an economic determination that 28 years was enough. It was probably too much for most works. Now, if you break that down by class of works, this goes back to my one size doesn't fit all, what you find is that books 
had a 7% renewal rate. That's not a lot. So for 93% of the books that were published, 28 years was enough. So by extending copyright automatically, as we do now, to likely author plus 50 years, or 95 years in the case of uh, corporations or other juridical entities, you're really giving a huge amount of copyright when the market signals have shown over 100 years that it's too long. You don't need it. So I, I'm certainly in favor of giving every sort of work the commercial value that it needs. I'm not talking about taking a penny away from anyone. What I am pointing out is that we have 100 years or so of data that shows that different works probably have different markets. You know, my work may have 10 days. To, I don't know, Gabby. 10 months, you tell me. <laughs> Whatever it's going to be. And that, that's sort of, I'm talking to um, representative of my publisher. Um, but that, that's what we have to figure out, you know. And there are data that can do that. So for corporations, um, yes, they, they don't die natural deaths like people do. But I would say even for people, life of the author plus 50 years, life plus 70 is way too long. Not because in the abstract is too long, but because the data show it. Now if you want to get into the economics of it, there's a wonderful brief uh, written in our Supreme Court challenge to our term extension. It was the Eldred case, and there are a number of, uh, of Nobel Prize winning uh, economists and others who did a study of how long uh, <coughs> copyright term would take to recoup value. In, in, and you can read the brief, and it's not all that hard to figure out. In short, what they, what they figured out is that a term of life plus 50 captures 99.88% of copyright lasting in perpetuity. <laughs> no. So if you want to take an economic approach to how long you, you have, life plus 50 is the same as forever. And unlike Peter Pan, you know, it shouldn't last forever. We have a question up here. Thank you for your talk. When you said that the law ought to be dynamic because creativity is dynamic, could you clarify with an example or two of a dynamic law matching the dynamism of creativity? How sure. would it work? Sure. So, and we, we can take it at both sides. And, and one, one thing I want to point out in, in this is that I don't believe in the binary approach of authors and users. <laughs> I think that certainly today all of us are authors, all of us are distributors, all of us are users. So the dynamism I think is across the spectrum there and, and I've been doing this for 30 years and I have to say it pains me to have a sort of copyright war where you're positing one group against another group. Um, I don't see it that way and I see dynamism as important for the whole thing. So if you take dynamism in what should be protected. So we have in our copyright law, um, section 102A is the section that grants copyright as an initial matter, determines what works are going to be protected. And of course, you know, one answer is original works of authorship are protected. But you know, that's merely a metaphor. For, for something else. But it's original works of authorship fixed in a tangible medium of expression. And we have definitions 
about what that is. And those definitions are dynamic definitions. Dynamic in this sense. So that if you have a musical composition, in the old days, it had to be fixed in sheet music. Now, I happen to be a musician. It wouldn't be hard for me to write down you know, a composition that I wrote. However, if people don't know how to read music, that would be difficult. So what we did in our law as a first step is to say, you can fix it in any form you want. You can do a tape recorder, you can do it any way it could possibly be fixed, notated, or anything else, and you still have protection. And that was an important way of having the law be dynamic, because it recognized, first of all, that some people aren't trained musicians, but yet they still have musical compositions. The other thing it recognized is that the form in which works are created are dynamic too. So you don't want to limit uh, the ways in which authors or artists express themselves to the technology that's in existence at the time. Right? That's going to limit people. It has to be fluid and dynamic because people are always coming up with new ways of expressing themselves. You also don't want it to be governed by categories. You don't want to say, well, that a musical work has to look like this. You want people to simply create. Maybe for classification purposes at some government, you want to know whether this is a musical work or an architectural work or whatever, but at the creative level, it shouldn't matter. You know, you just create the thing. Let other people worry about what to call it. You want to create it, you want it to be protected. I think that's an important example of dynamism. At the infringement side, you want people to be able to sue people who copy your work, say, in toto, in a commercial form, regardless of the form. So let's say in 1978, when we passed our Copyright Act, there were no compact discs at the time. Should we have said, well, infringement is only going to be for cassettes or for vinyl. And if someone comes along and copies your work in a CD, that's not infringement. You know, that's a bad situation. You want people to be able to go against those sort of infringers regardless of the medium in which the infringement takes place. So in fact that occurred. When CDs came along, we didn't have to amend our copyright law. When MP3 files came along, we didn't have to amend our copyright law. And that was a recognition that both creation and infringement are dynamic as well. The other type of dynamism um, I think is represented by doctrines like fair use and to a lesser extent fair dealing. And, and again, I don't regard these as authors versus users. Most fair use disputes in the United States are authors versus authors. Right? So uh, you, you, you have, and, and I say this having drafted copyright laws, um, you have a number of different situations. You do have some situations that are, are fairly static. So if you're going to find people to be criminally liable for certain things, you need to be clear. Right? People need to know what they can do and what they can't do. To be clear, the law has to be fairly clearly drafted. Otherwise, you don't have notice of things. Right? And certainly in criminal law, there are defenses that the law is vague. You know, If you can't figure out what it is, if you can't figure out what your obligations are, like if you had traffic laws and the traffic law says don't drive too fast 
well, you know, is 55 too fast? Or is 70 too fast? Whatever it is, you're going to have set limits. And there are certain areas in copyright where you can provide static answers, and you should provide static answers for those. But just as creation and infringement and transformative uh, um, application of works are dynamic, for those things, they need to be dynamic. And that's why I think fair use works well, because it's a dynamic thing. It doesn't say you can do whatever you want to. There are a number of factors and a number of considerations. But what it recognizes is that creativity is dynamic, that you can't have static laws. Are you going to tell someone who parodies something? Well, you know, you can only take this much to parody something. You can only take five words. If you're going to do a book review, are you going to tell a book reviewer in the newspaper you can only take this number of words? No, it doesn't work that way. And so if law not is to going to match the referees as well, me? not to mention the or referees. referees, right. right. You can only make fun of one referee and not two. <laughs> right. so that, that's what I'm talking about by dynamism, you know, something that reflects the way people actually act. And then we'll go down here. And I think there's somebody here as well. Um, thank you for your talk. Um, I would like to know your position on. Um, thank you for the dynamism of the of the law. Um, your position on it. Um, it's an interesting point when uh, Google uh, digitized um, several million book uh, books uh, and so transformed them from uh, an analog form to the digital form. So I would just like to know your position on on this uh, um, phenomenon. And. Um, I had another question, but I just forgot it, so it's fine. <laughs> right, so since, since I'm, I'm not here as a Google employee, although I understand that that's sort of inseparable, I mean, you work for a company, people are always going to think everything you say um, is to further your employer's interest. Um, so I, I, I do understand that. Um, what, what I'd like to do is explain my understanding of the history of that. So it started before I joined the company. I joined Google in October 5, 2006. And the lawsuit had been filed before then. So what I'm giving you is sort of my understanding of that. <coughs> um, and the understanding is this, that Google had arrangements with publishers for imprint books. Right? Those books existed in a digital form and there were license agreements on those. And you could show certain amount of words and it was determined by whatever the contract was. And obviously if you have a license, it's not a problem. There's no infringement. It's, it's a permission thing. Now the next question was, okay, <clears throat> if you view your role as a company as making information accessible to people, what kind of information are you going to make accessible? Um, you could make accessible only the information for which you have permission. That would be one way to do it, and that would be a very easy legal way to do it, in the sense that you'd never worry about getting sued, you'd never worry about what you do, because everything you do, you do with permission. Um, if you're talking about books, that would limit you to imprint books for which you have a license. Now. Uh, I've been a copyright lawyer for 30 years and I went to law school before then, so I'm, I'm dating myself here, although the old joke is you're not lonely that way. 
So if in, in those days, if you were going to write something about law, you had two choices, one of which were the online services like Westlaw or Lexis, which were limited to cases and legal treatises. The other thing you could do would be hard copy, and that would be your law library. And that would be the extent of your access to information. And so if you wanted to research a certain area of law, that was your universe. That was the information that you had to draw on. Now, this is surprising to some lawyers, but people who aren't lawyers actually do write about law and sometimes know more about things than lawyers do. They at least have interesting things to say. And certainly historians and sociologists and others uh, have insights in, into legal issues. But you'd never know about it because you couldn't find it. <laughs> so the question is, how do you find those things? So before I went to Google, I, was, I started to write this multi-volume treatise and became this monstrous 6,000-page thing. But it became monstrous for a number of reasons. One of the reasons was that by that point, Google had started the book search project. <clears throat> so if I wanted to research a particular case, I could have done it the old-fashioned way. I could have looked at the legal online service, or I could have gone to a law library, and that would have been it. <clears throat> and I would have been acting no differently than somebody in the 1950s. However, because there was a search engine, and because that search engine <clears throat> had digitized a number of books, when I did a search, what would come up would be snippets. And I actually learned about, oh, maybe 200 books that were on issues that I was writing about that I never knew existed. And you know, I ended up buying more than half of those books. <laughs> I bought them from used bookstores because they weren't in print anymore. So my own understanding of things was greatly increased by my being aware of books that I never knew existed. And if those authors were to receive royalties, and I doubt they did, they would have been benefited too. And that's a good situation. The end goal, I think, is figuring out how to put money in people's pockets. Now, if you don't know where they are, or if they're books of outer print, you can't do that. So on the other part of it, the outer print part, uh, the, the question was this. What do you do about scanning outer print books? One thing you could do is not do it at all, because you can't figure out who owns it. If you could figure out who owns it, it'd be easy. But there are more out-of-print books than there are in-print books, and there's a lot of out-of-print books where the publisher isn't in existence anymore, where you can't find the author. <laughs> so that, that's sort of a foundational question. And so one approach would be to say no. We're not going to digitize books. And I'm not talking about a substitutional sense. I'm not talking about selling them. I'm only talking about using it as a way to give search responses. So the decision was made to go ahead and do it because it was the only way it could be done. And, and so when that occurred, the publishers with whom Google had deals um, didn't like it. And so they sued. And then authors sued. And if you're interested in that, uh, issue that there's a lot going on at the moment under the Hargreaves review with the idea of how do you digitize orphan works in a way that is fair to any copyright holders that might come out of the woodwork down the line. There's this idea of the digital copyright exchange which we're all trying to figure out 
whatever that means. But that it's a very current issue, the, the, uh, the one that you raised. We have a question right. down here. Yes. Thank you very much. Um, two questions. Um, what are your views on Hargreaves, firstly? As a person or the review? Well, <laughs> uh, your own views. And then secondly, how would an evidence-based system differ from what we have at the moment in the UK? Right. So I, I, I don't know Professor Hargreaves, although I'd like to meet him. Um, I, I thought that the review was quite wonderful. Uh, I, I thought the Gower's review was pretty good, too. Uh, I think the difference is in, in the government's response to it. Uh, so I, I think the recommendations are wonderful. I particularly like the way that the review dealt with the question of fair dealing versus fair use. And, and what, what's significant, I think, is not the label that you give to something. Um, it's what functionally you want to happen. Now, you might disagree about functionally what you want to have happen. But the debate should be about what you want to have happen. It shouldn't be about fair use or fair dealing. I mean, I actually find it extremely um, ironic that there could be a debate in an in English-speaking common law country about whether fair use is alien. <laughs> now, since it arose here, right? And I, th I think those people who have studied the 1911 law uh, believe that when fair dealing was codified, there was no intention to change the common law before it. We actually ran into that problem in the United States when we statutorily recognized fair use in 1978. Judges doing what we expect judges to do thought that our, our provision in Section 107 of our Act was fair use and that they were to go through and apply the ordinary canons of statutory construction to what was merely meant to be a recognition of a common law doctrine. Um, we, had, we blew it completely. We did a terrible job in our section 107. We should have simply said, the fair use of a copyrighted work is not infringement. You know, and the worry was that we had an omnibus revision to our law, and if we didn't mention this common law defense, some judge might say, well, it isn't there anymore. You revised your whole law, you didn't mention it, so you don't have it. Um, so to avoid that, there was a provision that was put in, and then it got mixed up in the political battles between libraries and educators and publishers and authors, and it became this like minotaur, horrible thing that was badly mangled, probably until our two live crew case. But in any event, um, we share a common heritage on this, and uh, what I liked about the Hargraves review is that it basically said, look, we're, you know, the, the issue is not should we adopt American fair use, leaving aside the irony. The issue is what functionally do we want to happen? Do we want people, for example, to be engaged in format shifting? Do we want people to be able to do um, adaptations of things that are non-commercial? And what I liked about Hargraves is that it answered those things that way and avoided the ideological battles that simply didn't matter at all. <laughs> what matters is what do you want you know, your life to be. So I thought that was quite wonderful. Um, I also thought the, uh, the term lobbynomics was fantastic, and I've appropriated it since it's not subject to copyright. Um, and I gave attribution <laughs> for it as well. It was really quite, quite fantastic. 
having worked in Congress, I, I understand how, how that works. Um, I think one thing you have in the UK as well, which is fantastic, is impact assessments. Um, I must say I was I was quite disappointed in the Court of Appeals opinion on, on the ISP one, where at least as I read the opinion, it simply said, well, look, Parliament already struck the balance, so I don't have to do anything else, which seems to me a very odd uh, approach. When did it strike the balance? In 1709? Did it strike in 1911? I mean, if that's all the review of an impact assessment means, it doesn't mean very much at all. But I think the work that the IPO done has done is, is really stellar. And I wish that we in the States had impact assessments. And so um, I, I, I regard it as sort of a high, high watermark. Okay, we have a question down here as well. Thanks. Um, yeah, thinking about um, creativity and uh, corporations primarily, copyright. Um, I was having a conversation with a, uh, somebody in legal department at Disney and, and we, she, she acknowledged that a lot of misappropriation of uh, creative uh, you know, IP happens from vulnerable people, IP people who are protected by agents and all this kind of palaver. So um, I was saying, you know, why? Because at that end of the market they're quite cheap. <laughs> There's a lot of money involved. And she came back to me a couple of days later and said, I've been thinking about what you said and I think it's because creative people are regarded as a nuisance in the kind of big corporate industries and um, they, they want control over their material. Uh, they might not want you to use a, a tune that they've composed as a love song in a kind of battle scene where everyone's getting chopped to pieces or something. So I was wondering if, if there's any, obviously if, if corporations have that um, intent or, or other advantage in breaking the law, just like you were, you were um, remarking earlier on people having a you know, a desire to comply with the law. Corporations, in that sense, you could mm. say, have a desire to break the law. Right. So, uh, I'm a fan of Thucydides, and, and I've read his uh, History of the Peloponnesian Wars. Right. And so there was a, uh, a island, still an island, Melos. It's also, a, I think, a classical record label. Right. And I think they were like the east of Sparta. This is during the war between Athens and Sparta. So the, the, the uh, Melians, which are what the people in Melos were called, wanted to be neutral. And they didn't want to get involved in these things. The Athenians saw it differently. They didn't want somebody next to Sparta to be neutral. So they go to the Melians, and, and this is recounted in Thucydides in the Melian dialogue. And they go to the Melians and they said, look, you know, we think you should become a satellite of ours. And the million, this is the million men, the women weren't asked, of course. Um, million men said, no, I don't think so. I think we'd like to be free. And the Athenians said, well, look, you know, we're not going to beat around the bush. We're going to tell it to you the way it is. We're not going to claim this has anything to do with principles. Um, the strong do what they will, and, and the weak suffer what they must. Right. So that's been sort of a, a, a principle, and, and I, I, it's as true in copyright as it is in anything else, those who have leverage exercise it. I would say, at least in the United States, that uh, large corporations are among the most regular users of fair use. That's another thing that's sort of amusing, right? right? That fair use somehow is uh, an attempt by individuals to take works and and you know, you're, you're taking away property rights. If you look at, say, a company like Viacom, 
which happened to have sued my company, right, for $1 billion. This is the Austin Powers thing, right? We're suing for $1 billion. Um, they are among the most regular users of fair use. They have a, a, a channel called Comedy Central. This is John Stewart, Stephen Colbert. They exist on fair use. Um, they actually tolerate quite a lot of user-generated stuff. Walt Disney, of course, has relied upon the public domain for many uh, of their works. Bambi, right, which was based upon uh, a work by a, a German called Felix Salton that had gone into the public domain in Germany. So at least in the United States, you know, the large media companies exist uh, across the spectrum of being both copyright users and, uh, and copyright creators, and, and quite a number of them have enlightened views on what should be used, and some of them don't. And sometimes the legal departments have a different view than the business departments do. It's not unusual for business departments to give things to people that the legal department doesn't want them to give them to. Right, this is sort of the way the way it works. But you're, I certainly take your general point that those who have more power than others can certainly use it, and it's absolutely used in in the copyright world that way. Startups, for example, have a huge problem this way. So if you're a startup company and you want to do an innovative service, and you're really lucky and you get venture capital, maybe you get a certain amount of venture capital and your startup is an innovative way to bring music or art or whatever it is to other people, um, if you're doing that on a scale that makes it useful to people, you're using a lot of works. You're making a lot of works available. And I'm not talking about it in a substitutional sense. Um, what that does in the United States is it exposes you to vast statutory damages. That's what the copyright math video was all about, right? What it was about was the ability to use our statutory damages as leverage, right? So if you say, any time you copy a work, it's $150,000 per work, that gives you incredible leverage, and it's been used against startups. And so startups who get a cease and desist letter saying, you're using 10,000 of my works, even if the definition of use is small, that's a huge problem because you can be sued. The minimum, by the way, is $750 per work. So if you take $750 per work times 10,000, you know, there goes all of your venture capital. So that, that's a significant issue for us. And, and, and I would like to see reform in that way. I mean, it's not a question of copyright owners not being able to recover any damages they uh, suffer. We have actual damages, we have profits. Right, so in, in our system, you can, you can collect wherever ac your actual damages are, your losses. You can also get the defendant's profits to the extent that there's not double counting. So let's say you're lucky enough to sue a defendant who's a better business person than you. It does happen. Um, then you can actually get their profits. Forget about your losses because they're better than you at selling your own work. You can get theirs. Right? We don't make you choose. So we actually have really good damages, um, but we do have this problem of the leverage that you're talking about, and that, that's how it plays out. Okay, we have one question down here, and we have seven minutes left. Uh, there's another question here. We might have time for one more. Is there anyone down, yeah, down the back? Yeah, so we have three more questions. Go ahead. Right, mine, mine's quite quick. Um, you uh, mentioned the 28-year uh, uh, 
um, copyright term. period. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just curious if there was any like notorious examples in the field of catastrophic mistakes and people not renewing. Um, and on a kind of related point, I was kind of curious how they calculated what the uh, profits made in perpetuity were for some works, which could possibly be rescued from obscurity and become international bestsellers for a hundred years, one year from now. Right. So when in um, 1908, I think, uh, Mark Twain uh, was testifying before Congress. And you know he was a great theatrical guy. First of all, he had that incredible head of hair, right, and that mustache, that really big bushy mustache, which I'd never have, even if I'd never shaved. And he wore a white suit, you know, and linen shirt, and you know he was really quite impressive. And he was a very famous author. So he goes in, and then he has, and at that time, the proposal was to switch to a term of life of the author plus some year after that. So uh, the, the story is, whether it's apocryphal or not, he has this conversation with the chairman of the committee, and he says, look, the only way I ever made money was on these renewals. So he, like other authors, would have to assign his rights to his publisher. And then, at the renewal time, if he didn't assign the renewal, he would get that back. And it's sort of the situation you're talking about. You may not know when a work is going to be popular, when it's first published. And so the idea of having two terms, having a renewal term, stem from this idea of giving authors a chance to get things back and renegotiate for them. That was, uh, at, at that point, the theory. So we would have gone to Life of the Author plus something in 1909, except Mark Twain went and you know, mouthed off, and, and so they switched back to that 28 plus 28 year term of existence. But that was exactly the theory for it, that the copyright for some reason um, is a, a, a market right where the value of it can't be known at the time. And so the purpose for the renewal right, by the way, was not to give the original publisher or somebody else uh, the, a, an extended term. It was to give the author the ability to renegotiate at a time when the value could be known. That, that way, was the theory. By the way, William, is, is the story true about, um, there's a famous story about it's, it's a Wonderful Life that the film company forgot to renew Yes, it. right. So, so the second part of this, yes, there absolutely were examples of people who forgot. It was also true that the U.S. Copyright Office, in, in promulgating regulations under that act, came up with some insane insanely difficult rules. These weren't rules that were in the statute. It was the rules that the Copyright Office made. And when I worked at the Copyright Office, I actually had a few calls like that. So the Copyright Office made the distinction. Let's say that the author died and the author was a male, because statistically males don't live as long as females do. So it was always the, the widow who would inherit the work. And the Copyright Office required that the renewal be filled out as the estate of, fill in the name of the dead white male. Um, and, and this particular widow filled it out, her name, widow of. Now what people did, because people are people, they delay until the last minute. You had an entire year. Right? You had from year 27 to year 28 to do this, 
but people always wait until the last minute because it's human nature. And then when you submit it and you did it the wrong way, that was it. You, you couldn't go back. So yes, there absolutely were examples of that where people intended to renew but forgot or did it in a way that the Copyright Office didn't approve. I mean, there are ways around that. First of all, don't let the Copyright Office promulgate rules like that and make it much simpler. But yes, there, there is a downside to that. I think we'll just have one quick question. I'll have to ask the other person to ask Bill afterwards. Uh, hopefully you can uh, find her and, and you can answer whatever, whatever question she has. So one quick question up the top, you at the front. Um, without a oh, um, can I just begin by saying that I pretty much agree with everything you said. You convinced me we need to move towards an evidence-based copyright law. The one thing that I might disagree with, though, is something you said near the end, is that the laws made should pander to the, uh, to the views and wishes of society. I think this is probably a mistake, given that society can often be very selfish, and in the instance of copyright, they might want to try and get as much free material as it can. I think it would be a bad idea simply for lawmakers to simply do what society thinks acceptable on the basis that it, they're more likely to follow the rules. I think we elect our officials to make to strike a balance between the views of society and the views of big business, and hopefully we should trust them to strike a good balance. Would you perhaps like to respond to that? Yes, I'm certain I didn't use the word pander. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, I, and. And yes, I, I, I do take your point. Uh, and and as, as I mentioned, there are people who took my book for free, even though it was available in a, in a cheap and easy form. Uh, it, it is true that also that there are differences of opinion among groups, and that those differences of opinion are genuinely held, and that uh, it's not always clear at the time what's the right thing to do. So I, I think and this is a very difficult task, of course, for government officials, um, is to face competing claims and competing evidence and try and figure out what it is. But I, I certainly wouldn't suggest that we simply have copyright laws that are going to make people happy by giving them everything for free. <laughs> Well, that's a, a good note uh, on which to end. Uh, it's now 8 p.m., so we thank you very much for, for coming. I hope you enjoyed the, uh, the lecture, and please give uh, William a warm applause. Thank you. Thank you for coming, please.